Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys, talk to you soon. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey there, what's going on, everybody? So today is another episode of the Build Your Network podcast. And yes, we're releasing on a Saturday because like I said, on Tuesday and on Thursday, we are trying out a couple of different things this week and just kind of experimenting. So make sure that uh, you let me know how you guys like this, if you liked it at all. Um, just shoot me an email over to Travis at TravisChapel.com or just go ahead and screenshot this episode, upload it to your Instagram story and tag me at Travis Chapel and go ahead and tag some of the other awesome guests that we have on the show today. So on Thursday, we released an episode called Badass Women in Business Part 1. So today is going to be part number two, and we're featuring another amazing lineup of some of the amazing women that we've had here on the show. So first of all is going to be Alicia Oxy. She is an actress. She's been on HBO's Ballers with The Rock, and she's been on several, several other shows and movies and different things like that, and she's just an amazing, amazing human being. So she's going to be talking about how to put yourself in an environment that will elevate you. And then we have Heather Mann, who is a multi, multi-million pound real estate investor and Forex investor and educator out in England and uh, her episode on the show did amazing and she's going to be talking about how to get good returns on your investments. Then we have Carrie Kasem who is the daughter of the world-renowned radio host Casey Kasem and then uh, Carrie also does a ton of radio stuff herself and uh, has been involved with a lot of different political things as well and uh, she is an amazing uh, host and does such a great job at what uh, her job 
is, and she's going to be talking about the importance of persistence and how she kind of landed some jobs with the UFC and uh, how she got in touch with Dana White. And that whole story is amazing. So you're definitely not going to want to miss out on that one. Then we have Amy Jo Martin, who is a social media expert, helped a lot of professional basketball teams. Um, One of the first pictures that caught my eye ever with her was a picture of her and Shaquille O'Neal because Shaq was a childhood hero of mine and uh, I thought it was so cool that she was actually able to work with him with his social presence and everything when um, when the Phoenix Suns were first getting started with all this stuff back in the day and uh, also um, following her on Instagram she has an amazing story going on right now with uh, her son that was born prematurely and which really hits home for me since I just had my son Cameron just a few months ago as well um, and then we are featuring Elena Cardone um, who is the queen of the Cardone Empire and uh, she recently has been uh, putting out her own book on building your empire and uh, so she's gonna be talking a lot about that and then we have Dory Clark who is a best-selling author uh, she's written several best-selling books and she's going to be talking about how to become a true entrepreneur. So there's so much value jam-packed in this episode, and I'm super curious to hear some feedback on this, guys, because um, this is the first time that we have ever tried these really long-form um, episodes. So please shoot me some feedback. Let me know what you think about it, and let me know if you like it. Um, and then uh, I can't wait to share some of this content with you, but first, really quickly, If you haven't already, you guys know that the show is 100% for free, so the only thing that I ask in return is if you guys could head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a rating and review and subscribe to the show. That is all I ask. Just helps me with some feedback on the show, yes, but it also helps me with Apple's algorithm, so please, please, please head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review, and I will be eternally grateful for your support. Um, Also, be on the lookout for Build Your Network Live, which is my first live event coming up out here in Las Vegas, November 8th through 10th. You can find more info on that over at buildyournetworklive.com. And now without any further ado, here is Badass Women in Business, part number two, featuring all of the amazing women that I just said, Alicia Oxy, Heather Mann, Carrie Kasem, Amy Jo Martin, Elena Cardone, and Dory Clark. I find this to be a common denominator with almost every single quote unquote successful person that I've been able to talk to on the show, which now is, you know, we're over 200 episodes in and been able to bring on some incredible, incredible people, including yourself. And I find that struggle is typically a common denominator with all of these people, meaning that um, there was some point in their life where something big happened and that was, that was somewhat out of their control or completely out of their control or maybe even within their control, but it was, it was a trying time. There was something that pushed them to become somebody different. Do, do you find that that is almost necessary, that it's almost necessary to go through struggle to become that person? Um, or, or do you think that it can be done without really going through some of those trying times? I don't know. I would like to think that in humanity that you could be born with a spirit that just knows how to self-soothe and and contain the emotional experiences that you're getting ready to have as a human being. I yeah. think to have those experiences, you ha- it teaches you a relentless, tenacious ability about surviving and wanting to survive and to wanting to still show up and have this human experience because as much like you know joy or sorrow that there is in the world there's like the exact match of sorrow or or joy is what I'm trying to say as much Mm -hmm. sorrow as there's an exact match of joy to that so Mm -hmm. I think that year I didn't die 
all the things that I thought who I was. Oh, I did have small deaths that whole entire year. My ego died. My identity with mortality died. My identity of faith was like, was risen, not to make it a faith-based thing. But I think because of that, I am able to test the limits of what I am humanly possible, capable to experience and do. And because of that, it has allowed me to be brave in my art and be courageous with my life um, and constantly be in, you know, certain conditions that might not be favorable, but I know that I can get through them. Like I set maybe unrealistic goals. I have ideas of what I want to manifest or create in this lifetime. And because of those experiences, I feel like it is possible. So I will continue to show up every day. Uh, Have you always been like really artistic? And if so, did you find it difficult to kind of nurture that desire growing up in a place like Kentucky? (laughs) It seems seems (laughs) counterintuitive. Um, Yes. And I always like to preface this as I love where I came from. I was shaped because of those people's inexperiences, but it was a very painful experience for me because I was different and I couldn't figure out a way to articulate it, nor did I feel secure enough to articulate it or express it. I had a lot of deep emotions and I could feel a lot of deep emotions from other people. And as a child, that can be very painful if you don't have an expression of getting it out. Hmm. So I would write a lot, but nobody knew that. Um, I would write, I was actually published for poetry. No, no. I was actually published for poetry. So, you know, my mom, I think knew that and then whoever else got the book that was published, there was like so many children poets that were published in this book, but I like words would just drop in for me. And I think that that was always my lust and desire to do acting, but I couldn't, I couldn't be um, a great soccer player and an actor because we had practice at the same time and rehearsal happened at the same time. So this burning desire and this creative energy that I needed to burn um, came out in, yeah, in writing and also I'm just also just feeling really alone, to be honest. And I think that is what also made me a good observer of the like human being is there was a lot of, um, I would say, creative neglect in my life, like a lot of support in it, um, whether that's because I didn't reach out to have it or I just felt I didn't feel like it was a comfortable environment for me to be as creative as I could be. So I'm very grateful for the experience of soccer opening ending and opening up that space and also for me to be at that age where I could leave a place that didn't allow my creativity to be fulfilled whether that's because of how I felt there or because of how other people treated me you know the same experience or reality but um yeah I am really happy to be in a place that supports creativity in a way that has allowed me to feel comfortable exploring every idea Right, right. That and expressing feels good and tingling. Yeah, and expressing it and um to be the age that I am, that's I, I'm I'm starting to take joy and gratitude in that I get to do that this as an art as well as um as a financial form too, because there's also that identity of overcoming like the poor starving artist syndrome. I'm right. doing a lot of work around that to like the, be like, the no, full-time it's okay. waitress, it's okay. part-time artist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
or or just being comfortable saying I am an actor as a child that you, you know, like Kentucky wasn't if I said I wanted to be an actor it was like how dare you be special and I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not trying to be special. I just really want to do that. Right. And right. But for some reason, that's regarded at, in certain places as thinking that you're better than mm. or that you're special because you want to do this one thing that other people think is special. Mm. And, yeah. You know, like that was, that, that's just my expression. Right, right. As well as writing now, as well as interviewing people as well. I just like people. And I've gotten to create a lot of different platforms in which I get to enjoy people, whether I'm playing them or talking to them or writing them. Yeah, yeah. And people. that's actually, that's how, that's how I found you um, was, uh, was, I mean, found, by figuring out that you had a podcast, which is, I think, really cool. Obviously, yeah. I'm a podcaster myself, and I find it to be such a uh, just a really fun platform, and it's allowed me a lot of opportunities that would have never happened if I didn't start the show. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Um, can I ask you, I mean, with all the stuff that you have going on, why, why, why podcasting? Why, why spend any of your time <laughs> putting out a podcast? Well, once again, I, um, it wasn't intended to be a podcast. It was created as actually a book. It was going to be 101 Most Unforgettable Auditions because I, experiencing as an actor and being a person, I thought it was really funny, like this whole vulnerable side of the industry that doesn't get exposed and the funny things that happen in auditions, as well as it being like a motivating tool for other people. Like people think that actors or people in this profession in the entertainment industry, they put them on this pedestal, but the audition process shows you is that like we are so humbled by what we have to do every day and like putting ourselves out there that we fail a lot and it looks really ridiculous how we fail 
And I thought it'd be really funny to put in a book. So I started doing 101 Most Unforgettable Auditions. So I'd been doing interviews for eight years and sitting down and talking to people. But I was reserving it for print. And then I had somebody looked at me and was like, why don't you do it as a podcast? And then I thought, oh, how wonderful. I could actually really use this, this platform, not only still show the audition hilarious side or humbling side or experience, but I can show the, the experience of the industry that is so not highlighted or um, talked about or given as a reference tool for people that are trying to come up. Like you always hear about the 1%. You only hear like, oh, tell me about this Oscar award-winning performance. But there's beautiful working actors out there in the world that have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 plus years. And they have experiences that they can share. And they have um, the way in which they did it, which nobody does it the same. An example to bear witness for people that are trying to be cre- in any creative field, I think, really. I think it's interesting to find people's journeys to where they got to where they are. I'm fascinated by it. And yeah. I wish that that was a, t- a tool that I had when I started because I made so many mistakes by not knowing. And if there was this type of mentorship program out there, I, I look at it as a mentorship program. I do it from, I go, I do, conduct these interviews. I collect intel from other artists, whether it's actors, directors, writers, showrunners, animators, any, any element of the storytelling business. I get to figure out why they create the stories they do and how they do. And I love that. So then I get to, digest information that will make me a better artist or make me stay in the game longer. Right. And then I get to turn around and share that with my community. So I, I love that. I love every element of it. And I have to say that doing these interviews for the last eight years has saved my, saved my career. There's Hmm. been so many times I wanted to quit. I couldn't anymore. I couldn't take any more bad news or couldn't be told I was, not pretty enough, pretty enough, too fat, too thin, too whatever, too not enough of something. So to sit down with somebody else and hear how they paved a way for themselves, I, I just, I adore, I adore that in people. And I've, so, I, I actually have listened to your show. And can I just say, you are an amazing interviewer. Um, you're, you're so engaged in the conversations. You ask fantastic questions. Is that a skill set that kind of comes naturally to you? Or have, have you done like a lot of work to really perfect that specifically? I mean, I had no idea I had it. I was like, I'm, when people say that to me, I, I say, oh, really? Like, I get, I'm genuinely touched that you think that. I just, um, no, I've never taken any training for it. I just really love people. And I have allowed myself to have a freedom in this conversation to just garner information from them whether it be something to lighten my day or lighten the the load. So anything that they're willing to share of themselves with me, I was going with an intention of what I'd like to hear about, like one or two things. And then I let the conversation go where it may. And that's where I get some mind blowing conversations from creatives. Like, McCod Brooks, like I just had an episode with him. He's on Supergirl. Like he's been acting for a long time. I loved him in a show called My Generation that nobody saw. It got canceled after five episodes. And he was so brilliant. And the show was so brilliant. And we started talking and we didn't even talk about an audition story because we talked about his, he almost died twice. And we went to the spiritual place. Like that's amazing. That's a nice day's work to sit and connect with a human being that way. Yeah, that's, that's really the biggest thing that I can kind of pull from that and share with people is that it seems like you have a very natural curiosity 
and genuine desire to really just get to know people and have interesting conversations, which provides some absolutely fantastic content. If you're listening to this right now, I highly recommend going and checking out Alicia's show, That One Audition. Um, find some of your favorite actors, actresses all on that show. Um, and Alicia provides a fantastic interview. Um, Alicia, I kind of want to shift gears here and talk a little bit about relationship building, networking and stuff with the remaining time that we have because this is the Build Your Network podcast where we talk a lot about it uh, on this show. And I, I am not in Hollywood, no surprise there. I'm not an actor, I'm not, I'm not any of those things. Um, but I, I just assume, I've always assumed, I just, I just have to believe that relationship building and networking is a huge part of making it in that industry. Can you talk, kind of talk into that for a, little, for, for a second? Uh, yeah, I think, I think it really is a very simple equation that I'm just starting to realize because seeds that I plant, I, I can see the seeds that I planted when I first got here. So I've been in Los Angeles for 15 years and there were certain seeds that I nourished and certain seeds that I didn't as far as networking. And at that time it was not a conscious, a conscious effort to say, Oh, I'm going to water these seeds or these seeds. But what I realized is the networking and friendships and foundations that have I had built in 15 years that are paying off now are people that I was genuinely interested in. We were like-minded and I was, I was um, elevated to be a better human because of what they were doing in the world, whether they're a lawyer or an actor or whatever perform or like job profession they're in. So I just, I always go back to connecting, I think to people, but I always go back to wanting to be around people that as cheesy as it sounds are genuinely better than me. So whether that's somebody in acting that's better than me, a director, anybody that's actually around me, any of my friends that, that I have that surround me, I, I am impressed by the people that they are. Yeah. And because of that, because of that, 15 years later, there's jobs and things that are happening in my career because, I, I, because of those few seeds that I, I planted and watered because of just genuine interest in them as people are now paying off as business relationships later because we just, um, I gravitated towards those kind of people. So I think you have to like find your people. And I think it always pays off to, to surround yourself with people that are actually just excel at things better than you do. Right, um, totally. You can, so you can le- be of interest of each other and, and learn, and you can learn something new mm-hmm. and, um, and nurture them in the right way. Networking and, and um, just building a foundation in Hollywood is a lot different than it is out in other worlds. So I, and especially, entertainment but I'm sure this can be other different professions I do think that you have to protect yourself with a certain amount of integrity and know where you do want to go in the world and make those people your friends not out of a um, contrived way but Mm -hmm. order in order to fulfill whatever kind of purpose you're here to do so kind of like I always look at people around me as like yes and and thank you like what are they here to give me and and what what can I provide for them like an energy exchange and I also just try to not carry any more dead weight. So yeah. if, if they're, and, and using your time wisely, I wish I would have used my time when I was younger and didn't have a child and a different way to surround myself. I wish I would have planted more of those seeds. I definitely planted some hmm. and then, you know, and then other seeds you're like, I don't know how that friendship served me or how, um, 
Like, why am I hanging out with people that only want to achieve to this level and in any element of their life, personal mm-hmm. or professional? Yeah, I think you touched on a couple um, of things really important there. Um, the first thing is, look, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're probably in the wrong room. So yeah, find, and aren't you bored? Yeah, you're bored. Right, exactly. <laughs> like just, yeah, people get to be the big fish in the small pond and then they just stay there instead of moving up to the bigger pond and then working your way up to be the big fish in that pond. And then you move to another pond. It's just part of growth and becoming the person that you're supposed to be. But you also touched on something, which, which is something that I try to hammer home a lot on the show, which is you, when you were saying that you're planting seeds, um, this doesn't mean that you were out there with like a thousand business cards and a hundred different resumes and all these things. And then going to these networking mixers and like handing them out and trying to like, no, 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 you were planting seeds, meaning like you were there building real genuine relationships with people because you were curious to get to know them. And then long-term after years of proving yourself and becoming better at your craft, now those relationships pay off. Yes. Yes. And I do think when you are the person that's shoving out a thousand business cards, because look, that's a strategy too. That's a strategy of a human being, but it's not a strategy that anybody really wants to be associated with. So I think that there's a strategy of like investing that same thousand card business card mentality and putting that energy into yourself to being and feeling like that person. And then therefore just attracting really um, investing in like the relationship itself because people also smell um, relationships that are just for the sake of networking like the thousand cards like you don't want to go to a party and hand out 10 business cards but you didn't get to connect with anybody you're not getting to change your experience in life anybody that I've interviewed on my show that has had really life-changing moments it's because they were so in the moment and in genuinely an interest with the person that's around them that of course something wonderful and beautiful comes out of that um, energy because it right. was like yeah, yeah. It's never going really to think- last, right? Like you, you be that person, like you, like you said, that is a strategy. But if nobody wants to work with you, do business with you, or be associated with you, then it's only going to work for a certain period of time before everybody's like, oh my gosh, exactly. again, stop it. <laughs> you know? Again, well, and it's just a lot of energy and then you're creating more energy around this and it's almost an anxiety cre- created energy instead of like, you know, like find your interests, find what gets you excited in life and then go and find people that are doing that. And I, my grandma, oh, she has this horrible saying and I'm going to butcher it. Let's just go back. I don't remember. Let's not even say my grandma said this. So it's something about like, and, and, you know, investing time and attention. Like if you're in one, if you, if you like the color, if you like apples, if you put yourself around apples, you're going to end up being with an apple. If you're, if you like apples, but you're putting yourself in a category with pears, you're always like, nothing's ever going to click or make sense. Hmm. So like put yourself in an environment around people that you want to have an elevated experience with professionally and personally as a person and grow. Back to the very beginning, I guess something they haven't heard is the fact that I actually grew up in Kenya and um, I then moved when I was nine years old to my parents had a family run business, which uh, I learned all my my endeavors from my parents and their mistakes. So bless them, they were trying their best and they they failed in their business. And then they came to the, to England to where my uncle was living. And we, we started from fresh, like complete start, absolute basic level. And from then on, I, I grew up in a very traditional family. So the ethics were very much, 
education is key. So you go to school, you're going to get the top grades and you will be happy for life. And it was a bit of a shock when I realized that that wasn't true. So, you know, that, that was my upbringing. So I was just studious kid, you know, academic a grade kid just trying everything to make I thought that literally this is my way out I didn't have a very exciting childhood from because it was just all I knew was there was a lack of money and lack of money Hmm. came with problems so that was my driving force from the age of nine when we moved to England I knew that you know what to solve my problems for my family I have to be super wealthy when I grow up so I was dying to get out into the real world and and make money, but it wasn't in the way I thought it would happen. Mm, no kidding. No kidding. So, um, mm-hmm. so you might say school failed you a little bit. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, I was the top of, stu- you know, top A grades and everything. And I hated school to be honest. Nobody likes reading mm. and learning. And I, I, I mean, not that kind of reading, different type of reading, like, you know, yeah, no, I, understand. Yeah, yeah. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. So, uh, school let me down because it not, never taught me anything about the real world. Like you, you literally will fall flat on your face if you rely on just, in my opinion, just your education. Um, it doesn't teach you how to negotiate. It doesn't teach you networking, like something that you're passionately teaching people, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, things like that, they don't teach you that. They teach you like how to add one plus one and and then physics and, and history, which is great, but it actually doesn't make you wealthy if you are thrown in the middle of a, in the rat race. You, you literally have nowhere to do, you've got nowhere to go. So um, I learned everything when I left school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that and that's the thing, though. That that's the thing that I was talking about. This was somebody the other day, and that's the thing that I think is one of the most crippling aspects of school is that you get taught to basically go to school for the first, you know, thirteen, and then into college, university, and then you're up into seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years of your life, and then, um, and then all of a sudden, like, and then all of a sudden, your education is just supposed to stop. You know, that that's I think that's the biggest disconnect for people that go to school is that once they walk across that platform and get their diploma, it's like, all right, I'm done learning now. And and then and then you get into life and realize that like all the stuff that you learn doesn't really apply to real life anyway, but you're out of the learning mode. So now you're faced with all these real life problems and it's just easier to shut down rather than continue to move forward. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I completely, completely agree with you on that. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your best investment advice, Heather. I know you're uh, pretty diversified, several different asset classes. Where do you recommend starting and where do you recommend doubling down? I think, okay, so investment for me is simple return on investment means how much money you're putting in and how much you're getting out. And the best ones are where you put nothing in at all, which sounds crazy, but it is possible. How do you do that? Well, first thing is you have to be good at knowing how to talk to people. Hence, this networking thing is super powerful. I was a very introverted kid. So let's just make that very clear. I wasn't that super excited, loud person at school. I was the one in the corner that wouldn't say a thing and was shy as hell. So this is for anyone who thinks, okay, to be good at networking, I've got to be extremely extrovert and I haven't got that skill. And you can do it regardless because it's simply a fact of how can you add value to the other party? And how I was, to make a good investment, 
I'm literally finding how can I add value to this person? And I, I can, uh, for example, I started in property. So I was negotiating. I was so good at negotiating. I found out how to get houses for very low prices because people were desperate to sell or had financial troubles. And I would fix a problem and then I'd find somebody with the money. They'd bridge the finance and then I would make the profits based on that. You know, So it was finding what you're good at and resourcefulness. Resourcefulness, yes. That's that's exactly the word I was going to pull out of that, that whole story. There's a, a couple of key lessons there, but the main one I think is resourcefulness and problem solving. Looking at, looking at a situation and realizing that there's money to be made and then just figuring out how to do it. And you didn't have any money to start with, but then you realize that wholesaling real estate and becoming the middleman is probably a pretty good way to get started because <laughs> you don't have to have any capital. You find someone that has the capital, you find the deal, and then you make the two go together and then you take the something that's in between that. And um, that, that's that's fantastic. But anyway, go, keep, keep going, keep going. Sorry to interrupt. So no, no, you're absolutely right. So what? I, so that's property. But if you had to do it with financial in the financial world, so how I did that? I had, if I had no money, let's. I mean, I came from property background before I went into financial, so I had a bit of money. But if I had nothing, what I would do again? Use the same skills. I'm good at negotiating, communicating, closing a deal. So I would find someone who can make somebody else's money grow really. Well, so rich people want to get richer. That's the simple truth about being wealthy. They know what makes money and they're happy to talk to people that will make them wealthy. So if you are going to start from nothing, then find the people who can add value to the the rich person. I became a shareholder of a fund by doing this. I made lots of friends through networking, high net worth individuals. And then I introduced them to the trader in the city that I actually learned everything from. And he traded their money in that entry level money was 250,000 pounds. So soon it built up to multi-million pound funds. I already, um, so this is if you had no money of your own, I already put some money in, but let's pretend I had nothing in. I would still do the same thing. I would introduce the rich people to the trader. The trader would say, okay, thank you very much because you've introduced so many millions. I'm going to give you X amount. I, I negotiated the deal beforehand. I said, if I bring 10 mil to the table, I want 30% of the fund. And I'll be honest, it still happens today. So anyone can do it. And you are then making passive income from the trader doing all the hard work. You're the middle person and you're making money because you've added value to the high net worth. Uh, they're happy. The trader's happy. He's got more money, commissions. I'm happy because I, I agree that I will get a portion of what the trader makes. So everyone wins. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that you can, I love in that situation that you can earn while you learn. And I think that's that's another shortcoming of of school that and I, I I didn't bring you on so that we could bash school, but um, but I, I do think that's a shortcoming <laughs> of school is that you're paying to learn the whole time. You don't make money to learn; you pay to learn. And um, what you were doing there was literally making money and learning from one of the best traders in London at the same time. So learning yes. a skill set that would benefit you in the future to be able to do your own trading and make your own money. But at the same time, earning money because you were the one that brokered the deal to begin with. And so many awesome takeaways from that. So um, let's go ahead and deep uh, d- dive deep into the networking aspect because I think it's really interesting um, how much you've already been talking about it. And I don't know if it's just because you're on my show and, and you feel like that's what you should talk about. <laughs> no, it's but, actually uh, the fundamentals of everything. I, mean, yeah. I knew you liked the networking aspect and I think it's amazing you 
you teach people that, but it's actually the basis on why I am successful because it's who you know in this industry. I'm, I don't claim to be a genius. I'm not some super clever trader or property investor. I'm good, but because of the people that's taught me. And I found that from networking. And it's uh, so I didn't create it, you know, sitting in my house all alone. So that's the thing. The networking is super powerful. I literally know how to find opportunities from, okay, this person can create an opportunity here. But it's how you add value. So networking is only good. You know, a lot of people think it's just take, take, take. And that's when networking can become very distasteful. It becomes almost annoying. People don't like you if you just want to take from them. I like people who network by saying, okay, how can I add value? They're adding value to my life. I'm adding value to their life. It's a mutual benefit going on. And that's when networking is super powerful. So that's all you got to do. You're, you're literally answering all the questions I had for you, Heather. I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> I was I was about to ask you, do you believe what you know or who you know is more important? And you literally were just like, oh, it's who you know, it's who you know. And then my next question was um, talking about giving and taking, and you just answered that question. So, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, we're on, we're on the right wavelength. That's good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, that, and just to piggyback on what you were saying, that is the... I think number one disconnect in, in networking, quote unquote networking. And I think that it causes a lot of people to be really timid about it because some people, I feel like they just, there's two extremes, right? There's, there's the networker that you're talking about. That's always trying to take, take and take. And he's always got a thousand new business cards hot off the press in his back pocket to throw in your face and, um, and ask for this and ask for that. And then he moves on to the next person without even hearing your name or what, where you're from or anything like that. But then you also have the person that looks at that person and doesn't want to be that person so much that they just don't network at all. So what is your advice to that person? So they don't they don't want to network because what they don't like they're afraid of being that annoying friend that nobody wants to talk to. Well, it's very simple actually. It's about making building relationships. So for the annoying person, they're only annoying because they're not genuine. That's why they're annoying. So to be not annoying, it's actually just connecting to your inner self, i.e. just being like, okay, I, I genuinely am going to add value to this person or I'm going to find a way to help. So a lot of people focus on the money. They think, okay, how can I make money from this person? That's the worst thing in the world. I never focus on money and I, I don't remember the last time I have. I know I will make money regardless. It's easy to make money, but what's more important is the relationship I'm building and the trust I'm building and the integrity. So that's all you've got to go out there. You know, I mean, the reason I bought a car without looking at it, for example, is because because I trusted the guy that I deal with who buys mine, sells my cars, etc. He is so good at building rapport. And he's these are the best communicators. If you want to do very high-end business or any kind of business, people go to who they like. Even if somebody else cuts them, um, say, say I, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you. I build a rapport with you. I like you. When somebody else just comes five minutes of their time with me and they're like, you know what, I can do better than Travis. I'll be like, no, thanks. Maybe you do, but I like Travis. I'm going to him. So that's networking. That's when it's powerful and that's when it's not annoying rather than I can do everything. It's just integrity and uh, yeah, gen, being authentic. Being authentic. Yeah. Building deep, genuine relationships with people that don't have any sort of like any, any sort of backend offer uh, to, to use some online marketing terms there. But there, there, there's no, there's no hidden agenda when, when you're going to connect with these people, you're just genuinely trying to build relationships. And like, I, I like that you brought in the money into it and said, and said, it's not about the money. It's about the relationship. Um, because I feel that a lot of people treat it 
like um, cold calling, you know, like in-person cold calling. They look at networking event like in-person cold calling opportunity. Oh, look, and 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 I come from a I come from a door-to-door sales background, Heather. So I've I've been doing door-to-door sales for as long as I can remember. And 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 the 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 problem is people treat networking like it's door-to-door sales. Like yeah, they'll, they'll go up to every single person and treat it like a numbers game and quote unquote, knock the door, talk to the person, give them a little spiel. And then they say, no, they move on to the next one. And it's just not how you go about doing it. And like, I'm, like I said, I'm a door to salesman. So the, I, I think it has its place. Cold calling always has its place, but not in relationship building. Yeah, you're right. No, but you know what? You're lucky because I think everyone should do something cold calling or canvassing. I did it myself. And that was how a quiet person can become taken out of the shell because to be very, because I mean, I was, I was scared of rejection and the only thing that will destroy your confidence in immediately is cold calling or door to door canvassing, because that will be the quickest way you get over this rejection issue. And once you pass that, then you're, you're very good at rapport building. So I think actually it's an advantage you came from that because you know how not to feel a problem if someone doesn't want to talk to you because it's just like people may do that but you're doing it in a different way this time so you'll actually be a better networker if you've had that experience in my opinion I was better at negotiating deals because I used to sell mobile phone phones when I was 16 um you know and just the stuff that the annoying salesperson that was me um (laughs) (laughs) but that built my confidence because I was not I didn't care that somebody walks past you and just hates you and right. you just shrug it off and smile and next person. And that's powerful. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And network building is actually just a sophisticated different level. But with the basis of that, self-image is huge because the only reason people will be scared of networking to a very good level is because they don't think they're worth talking to themselves. I, I don't, I can't offer. I mean, I remember when I was really young, I used to think, oh my God, I can't offer that person that guy's way too big i'm nobody um that's a really bad image self-image you've created in your head so unless you destroy that and you're fully confident you've got everything to bring to the table nothing to lose that's when you become a good networker as well yeah and and if i can add on to that what what you're just saying is something that I've found to be completely true with with uh, with this podcast, and it's funny that I'm I'm really introverted um, naturally. So I, I'm a natural introvert, like like you were saying. I'm I'm not the person that is like always trying to be the center of attention, and like I would rather be by myself. When I go to a networking event, like I have to force myself to go out and talk to people. I I, I don't. Yeah. I, I naturally would rather just sit there and get on Facebook or like text a buddy uh, something yeah. funny. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like make yeah. fun of people in the room or something. something like that. Um, that, that's my, yeah, exactly. That's my natural tendency to do that. And so I think it's, I think it's, I think it's funny that we're both kind of introverted, but we're both talking about how, how much cold calling and door to door and that kind of a thing helped us come out of that and build confidence because confidence has been very, very important for me to uh, get the quality of guests that I have on the show. I mean, even, even talking to you right now, Heather, like I, I think probably one of the big reasons that that you're even talking to me right now is is some of the other guests that I was able to get on the show and they're recognizable names, people that you've talked to, people like Patrick but David, um yes. who, nice who guy, yeah. yeah, really, really awesome guy who I just kind of reached out to on an Instagram message one day. And I, I can tell you that I've probably reached out to 20 more people that are just as influential or more as as, as Patrick is and 
you know, a lot of them never said anything back to me. A lot of them, you know, said no. And a lot of them said, you know what, come back when you have a better following or, you know, a lot of people said no. And a lot of people didn't answer. But like you're saying, when you have that, when you have that confidence, like it, it does, it just doesn't phase me anymore. It just is like, you know what? Um, all right, no worries. You know, um, if I can help at all, let me know. I always try to offer something, uh, offer to give some value when somebody says no. Is, that, was, is there anybody I could introduce you, introduce you to? Or is there any way that I can help you out or anything like that in the meantime? And then, you know, maybe in the future we can work something out. And you don't have to take it personally. Just realize that like, okay, it's not going to work out right now, but in the future it might. And maybe I can add some value to you in the meantime. And, um, and uh, I just, uh, I love so much about, about what you're saying. It's just fantastic. If you, if you had to boil it down to, to one, to one aspect, I know we've talked about a few different things here and there today. Uh, just one, just one tip, like one takeaway that you would want somebody listening to this, uh, to go home with about how to grow your inner circle the right way. What would that one tip be? Before you enter any venue or networking or whatever group or even a meeting, Always know what you want before. Know the end goal before you enter. If you just head in, like just make conversation from no idea, then your your conversation is going to go all over the place. But if you have an end goal, I I'm going. Oh, my outcome from this conversation will be X Y Z. You will you will own that place. Hmm. That is a very actionable tip, and actually yeah. one that I uh, something that I've actually really been trying to work on recently. Is because I've I've been a I've been definitely that person that just kind of goes into a conversation just like, hey, whatever happens. And, but then I started realizing that my follow up on those conversations and like you were saying before, the actual relationship building comes from having something beforehand that you're going into that conversation with, something that you want to uh, capitalize on in that conversation, especially when you're talking to people of influence or um, uh, somebody that you really really want to get to know in 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 that regard. Um, <clears throat> Heather, th- throughout your career, I think I know the answer to this, but throughout your career, how important to you and to your success have mentorships and group mastermind settings and, and stuff like that been? Oh, wow. Yes. You do know the answer to that because I'm going to say it's huge. <laughs> and <laughs> mentors are, are incredibly powerful people. I surround myself with mentors all the time. Even now I upgrade them constantly because depending on, on your personality type and depending on how successful and how quickly you learn things and achieve things, you're going to have to keep stepping up the mentorship. I, you're, you're, I mean, I've had so many coaches I work with and eventually they've plateaued in what they can offer me. And then I go and step my game up, but that's great because it's constantly raising the bar and I wouldn't be where I am without it because we all have a subconscious ceiling on our, above our heads and you can very easily get comfortable. And that's, that's the dangerous part. And it's not, it's not unhealthy. A lot of people think that, okay, you can't constantly be striving for something and never be satisfied. Technically you are never satisfied, but it's the process you are in love with. And that's, it's not a destination. It's just the constant growth that I love. So I'm always happy. So it's not that I'm unhappy and I want more is I love growing and I love learning. And I can only do that when I'm surrounding myself with people that are better than me, people that are going to teach me something new and mentors that are, you know, have achieved it tenfold compared to me. So very important, super important. 
All right, guys, this episode is brought to you by Build Your Network Live. Yes, I sponsored my own show because that's what you can do when you run the show. And I gave myself a very good price, I might add. Um, but for real, though, uh, this, this is something that means a lot to me right now at the moment. And uh, I promise you it's going to be worth it. If you are someone who loves going to events to connect with people in person, then I'm super excited to announce that my first live event is happening out here in Las Vegas, November 8th through 10th. So to find out more info and to grab your tickets, head to bynlive.com. And if that's not enough, let me give you three huge differentiators that make this event the most unique event that you have ever attended. Number one, it is connection focused instead of content focused. So no nine hour lecture style content binges. There will still be amazing speakers and great content, but the main focus is going to be on connecting with everybody else that's there. Number two, it's going to be at a really unique venue. So this isn't going to be at another stuffy hotel conference room where you forget what time of day it is because there's no sunlight. Uh, we rented the entire first floor of Top Golf right by MGM on the Strip, and we are paying for everybody's lunches and golf times uh, there at Top Golf. So that's number two. Number three, there is an actual VIP experience. I don't know about you guys, but one of my biggest pet peeves is when events don't limit VIP tickets. Um, and then they make them way more expensive than a regular ticket. And then all you get is a notebook and maybe a better seat and a crappy stale hotel style chicken lunch. <laughs> so remember how I said that this event is the 8th through the 10th? Well, the 8th is going to be for VIPs only. That's right. General admission gets access to two jam-packed days and VIP gets a full extra day at an undisclosed secret awesome location in Vegas with guest speakers, workshops, and planned collaborative activities. This event will be worth buying the VIP ticket for, I promise you that. And there's only 30 VIP tickets available and there are only 10 left as of right now. So if you're listening to this, do not hesitate and make sure you head over to bynlive.com to grab your ticket today before the early bird pricing is gone. And I will see you out here in Vegas really, really soon. And now here is the rest of the show. The big thing that you talked about at 10X GrowthCon that really made me want to get you on my show specifically since it's about networking is the story that you told about getting a job at the UFC working with Dana White. Can you elaborate on that story for listeners? Of course. When I grew up, I did Kempo Karate for a little bit. I'm not a fighter. I did not enjoy it. My sister became a purple belt. My brother was great. I was not there. But I took a little bit of you know martial art as a kid. And I remember, gosh, was this 2004, dating this guy who was so into MMA and so into the UFC. I'd never seen a UFC fight. And he showed me a lot. And he's like, let's go to a fight. So we go to this fight. We're in the Mandalay Bay where I spoke, which is crazy. And we're, we're there and we're about halfway up and I'm watching the fight. And I think it was a big John McCarthy and there was the fighters and you know everything going on. But that was great. But I kept looking at the blonde, this gorgeous blonde that was doing all the interviews in the crowd and doing the post-fight interviews and just watching her. And I remember turning to the guy that I was with, the guy I was dating, and I said, you know, I could do a better job than in this role that they have. And he looks at me and he says, oh yeah, right. Like <laughs> do Lisa Durgan's job, you know, um, get Lisa Durgan's job. And that just, it fueled every, it just, the fire went off in me. It's like, you know that Bitmoji where there's like fire everywhere? That yep, was me. Yep. You know? And the whole time that I was there, I kept thinking, how do I do this? How am I going to get that job? What am I going to do? And it was, it was, I got very excited because I was going to do everything I could to work for the UFC at that point. I knew it. So I get home, I figure out 
who I need to write and who I need to send my reel to and my resume. And it was a man named Dana White and Zufa Productions. So I did that. I wrote a letter. I, I put my reel in. I you know put a resume in a nice cover letter and I sent it off. And meanwhile, I'm watching old UFC fights. I'm learning everything I can about MMA. I actually started to take jujitsu, not because I wanted to fight, but because I wanted to know the holds and, and be able to call things and be able to understand the fighting. And I didn't hear from him for a few months. I did it again. I wrote a letter, my reel, everything, sent it off. A few weeks go by, nothing. So I decided I was going to pick up the phone and call. <laughs> Lo and behold, I actually get Dana White on the phone. And I say, hey, it's Gary Kasem. I've sent you, you know, my reel, my resume. I'd love to work for you guys. And he says, oh, you know, I have it sitting here on my desk. I said, great. <laughs> Anything? <laughs> and you know, he said, we're not hired right now. But, you know, I'll take a look at it. And, and if we're looking to hire somebody, I'll let you know. And before Lisa Durgan, I think she was a playmate, was Carmen Electra. You know, I didn't have the, you know, I wasn't this tall, gorgeous, you know, <laughs> I wasn't Carmen Electra either. So I'm thinking, well... I'm cute. <laughs> you know, I'm a great host. That's what I have. About I'm a really good host. So I just said, well, what am I going to do now? I'm going to get myself in front of this Dana White. And I bought myself a ticket to the UFC, flew out to Vegas. And I heard about an after party everybody was going to. So I head there and I actually tapped the bouncer. And I'm like, hey, I don't know what Dana White looks like. Um, he is, you know, me and the guy said, absolutely. And I'll let you know when he walks in a few minutes later, he taps. He's like, that's Dana White. I run over to him. Dana, Carrie Kasem. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) it's me. Yeah. I want to work for you. I'm not a stalker. (laughs) He was really cool. He's like, look, you know, I love your persistence. It's just, you know, we're not hiring. You want to come in for the party. And that was cool. So then I thought, okay, what next? What do I need to do next? And before I did my next action, I got a call from Dana. I said, Hey, I'm going to be in Los Angeles with a couple of the fighters. We're going to do this morning news show. You want to come and hang out? Okay. Is there anything you need? Can I bring you anything? Whatever you need. He's like, no, just, just come out and, and meet us. So I did. I met them at this morning show and I walk in and the two biggest fighters in the world at that time are there. And especially the world of MMA which was Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture. You know, it's like, wow. Wow. And at this point, I knew enough about MMA to really hold a conversation. Mm. And I held my own with these guys and with Dana. And I'm like, I'm in. This is awesome. And they invite me to dinner that night with it was it was Chuck and, and Randy and Dana and Joe Silva and Joe Rogan and a couple of the PR guys. And we have this great dinner and nothing. I don't hear anything. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, I met Joe Silva, who's like Dana White's right hand man. I'm going to give him a call. We end up, I love this guy. He's the nicest man. And we end up talking for a while. And for some reason, he mentions that Dana White is addicted to black chapstick. Black chapstick. I'm really going, black chapstick. I've never heard of it. <laughs> Original, like black chapstick. The, the rapper is black. I'm like, oh. And for some reason, this creative like light bulb goes off. And I said, okay, I have got to send Dana White black chapstick. And not only did I send him some, I sent him a year's supply, maybe more. I mean, it was a huge box. And each container had like, you know, a hundred in them. And I just, I sent him this massive box of black chapstick, wrapped it up real nice, wrote another letter, shipped it off. And a few days later, he calls me back and he said, you know, I've never had anybody be so persistent, so creative and innovative. And he said, how would you like to host a DVD called Ultimate Knockout? So I wasn't going to use a host on it, but I'll give you a shot. 
you can see, we can see what you can do. And I said, great, I'll do it. I'm there when, and I do it. It actually ended up on Spike TV. And I did a few other ultimate knockouts for them. But a few months after that, he calls me up. He said, how would you like to host your first UFC fight? I did it. <laughs> within less than a year, I had Lisa Durgan's job. You know, so F you, X. You know, <laughs> called me and asked for tickets and wanted to meet the fighters. <laughs> no, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Man, I just love so much about that story, Carrie. And that's why I wanted you to share that on the show. Because I think, like I was telling you a little bit before we hit the record button, I think persistence is so underrated nowadays. And I think that too many people give up so quickly on, they'll, they'll it's so funny because you'll sit down with them and they'll be like, oh, this is my dream. This is what I want to happen. Like, this is what I would do anything for. And then somebody he says no and it's like well i tried <laughs> and then it's like whoa, whoa, whoa i thought that this was like your thing like i thought that you wanted this like do you actually want this what's the deal here why do you think that so many people give up so quickly i always had a dad that told me i could do anything that you know and i had a dad who was persistent and who went against the norm and who fought for things like i said that were more popular at the time that protested that so i learned a lot from him and somebody tells you no it's just one wall you got to you know, when you're training for whatever it may be, some intense, you know, like tough mutter or the military, or whatever, there's a wall there, right? That's telling you no. If you just stop there and turn around and <laughs> you're not going to win the race, you're not going to get in the military. You're not going to, you know what I mean? You got to get over that first hurdle. That's your first no, yeah. right? So then you're going to have other hurdles that are going to look different, that are going to act different, that are going to be different. You just have to find a creative way to get around it, under it, above it, whatever. Just get through it. That's a no to me. It's a fun, like mental course that you just got to get through. It's a puzzle, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a puzzle and you got to figure it out. It's a game. It's a life game. You're going to hear no's. You're going to hear you can't. You're going to hear you don't look right. You're going to hear, so what? I don't consider that. Those are considerations of other people. That's not where I'm going. That's how I look at a no. When you were first talking with Dana White and you got multiple no's from him. This is something that I've been talking to people about recently, Carrie, because I come from a door-to-door sales background. So I talk to a lot of people. I hear no a lot. I hear a lot of, you know, F off and all that kind of stuff. And more recently though, by doing the podcast, I'm hearing no's from people that I actually respect. Right. So like knocking a door, like Joe Schmo tells me to F off. Like, I don't really care because who's that guy. Right. But then I go up to somebody that I really respect and I'm like, Hey, will you be on my show? And they're like, no, I don't have time. And it's like, ugh, that's like, it takes more of a toll, I guess you could say. Sure. So when you're talking to someone like Dana White and someone who you obviously you really respect and that you want to work with and you want him to respect you, how much different is hearing a no from somebody like that versus like a regular, you know, quote unquote, regular person? And then how did you handle that going forward? Oh, it just made it more fun and more challenging. I don't think of it as like, you know, somebody's a normal person, somebody's a big person, somebody's it's like now, now you have to just get more creative, Travis. You know what I mean? You've yeah. got to write a letter about why you respect them, why they should be on your show, what you guys can do for each other, whatever it takes. You just keep going after them. Be persistent. Be persistent. Keep going after them. They'll get on your show. Find somebody that you know that knows them. Hey, I want this guy on my show. What do we do? What can I do? How can you help me? Yeah. There's so many avenues, you know, and maybe it's just a little bit more time. Maybe you need to, you know, whatever it may be, like show them all the people that have been on. I want you on. You're going to get help people. And I know you want to help people, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, but that's a pitch you can give to people who are saying, no, you're too busy. Are you too busy to help people? Are you too busy to help my listeners that really need to hear your voice? You know, there's so many ways that you can go about things to get people to go, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense now. You have to make it make sense for them. 
too. Yeah, right. That's the big thing. And that's something I was talking to a guy on my show recently, Steve Sims. I don't know if you know who that is, but we're talking about creating win-win situations where you take somebody who might have a more, let's say, prestigious, quote unquote, stature, and you're making a win-win situation for them but and for you. Obviously, it's a win situation for you to get somebody like that to, to come on your show or whatever it may be. But it's also creating a situation where they're like, all right, you know what? I could see that this is actually going to benefit me as well because people like that have to guard their time. And I think people take it too seriously when someone says no to them and they take it like really offensively. Like, you know, how dare you say no to me? You're just a jerk. And it's like, no, they're not a jerk. It's just like that guy has so many demands on his time. You have no idea how many requests that guy gets and how many like emails that girl gets and you have no idea what their schedule looks like. You just have to figure out and that's why I love your creativity in that process because you need to figure out a creative way to bust down the back door instead of walking through the front door. And I love that so much. So I'm going to ask you this question, Carrie. This is something I ask everybody that comes on the show. I'm curious to hear your answer. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? I mean, what you know is very important. You know, it's what it's how you've gone through life. It's the information that you've collected. It's who you are, you know, and a part of who you are. I mean, you don't have to know a ton and be a great person. You can be kind, you can be loving, you can help and not know a whole lot. There are people like that in this world that just have this kindness going for them. But also what you know, you can share with others and help so many. Who you know can help you along that journey and help get your message out in a much broader fashion. But it's what you know, I think that is the most important. Absolutely. Who you know, great. You can know a bunch of people. You can know great people, you can know bad people, you can know famous people, you can know rich or poor people, but it's who you are and who you're affecting at that moment, I think. Hmm. So can you tell us a story specifically, Carrie, about a time in your life when a connection to somebody led to something else that 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 led to something really great for you? Oh gosh, I think that's most of my career. Who <laughs> I've who I've called, who I've, you know, and then they, wow, I remember you called me and I'm going to, you know, so yeah, I mean, there are connections and it is, I think there's no way, no man is an island. So you're not, there's no way that unless you're isolated, like my dad was, there's no way you're not going to be able to meet people and to know people. So yeah, connections are a big part of it, but if you're not there, if you're not somebody who can actually do the job, knows what they're doing, it doesn't matter how many people, you know, right, right, you know? right. especially when it comes to work and jobs. But I'll have to say that having the last name Kasem in radio was the biggest connection for me. Didn't get me a job, but got me in the door. Now you have, and for your younger listeners, you know, my dad was the most listened to voice in the world for a while. He was the most recognized voice in the entire world for many years. So when you have this name like Kasem, it will get you in the door. But now you better be good. You better be twice as good and you better work twice as hard because they'll let you in and say, okay, let's see what you got. But no program director, no general manager of a radio station, let alone a syndicated program all over the country, all over the world, is going to give you that shot if you're not good. They're not going to take down their own career just to put up somebody with a famous last name. But the connection that with my father and to radio definitely got me in the door. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So the who brought the opportunity and the what allowed you to capitalize on that opportunity? Sure. I would say so. Speaking in networking terms and speaking in for work, you have to have both. You've got to know and you've got to have connections. You have to. I guess me looking at it from more philosophical and more of a point of view in life is like, 
Well, it's not who you know, but yes, in work and with getting places, you do. You got to make great connections. You have to. Pulling all of this back, I know we've talked about a couple of different ways so far already, but if you had to boil it down to just one tip, like if somebody was just tuning into this episode and they're about to tune out in another minute and you had this one minute to give them one tip on how to become a better networker, how to build real genuine relationships better, what would that one tip be? Well, I'll tell you what resonated when I spoke at the 10X Growth Con and what everybody, I mean, my Lord, did I get so many people quoting me with this. The one thing I said that I've been living for about 18 years now is do the opposite of what fear tells you to do. So if you're afraid to make that call to somebody that you look up to or that you think might not take it or might deny you, don't. You're afraid to put yourself in in front of somebody that could give you a job. Don't be afraid. Let it go. Who cares? The worst they can say is no, find another way. So anything that you're a little fearful of, it's funny, I I put this quote up on my Facebook and somebody said, what if, you know, fear tells me not to go near that grizzly bear. (laughs) (laughs) You always have that one person. (laughs) And I just wrote back, one of my favorite films is Grizzly Man. Have you seen it? No. (laughs) I lived with grizzly bears for 14 years because he had no fear. (laughs) He eventually got eaten in the end, but in 14 years, he actually lived with the grizzly bears. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So moral of the story, he don't had no fear, fear grizzly life. bears. Yeah, yeah. Until something that he did got him eaten. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you always have that one person that's going to be like, well, what about this? Yeah. I'd say in general, I'm just a really curious person. And that's taken me into a few different, quite a few different paths and facets in my career and personally too. So it, you know, from being an entrepreneur and enjoying that ride and also working in the corporate world, living in a lot of different places, just experiencing as much as I possibly can in this lifetime. Awesome. And it looks like you've been able to experience quite a bit. And now you have the podcast, Why Not Now? And uh, I've personally listened to a few episodes, fantastic content. If you're listening right now, whatever podcasting app you're listening on, just swipe up or swipe to the left or search somehow find Why Not Now podcast with Amy Jo Martin and subscribe to that. So much great content that she's putting out over there. What's been a few of your key takeaways that you've learned from the people that you've had on your show recently? Amy Jo? Oh, great question. Thank you for asking. I feel really fortunate to be in this spot where I just get to learn and listen from some, well, really all walks of life, but people who are extremely passionate in what they do. And so a few takeaways. I'm starting to notice some themes and trends after interviewing more than 100 people. And I call these people renegades. So I've also worked with many renegades in the last 15 years or so in business. And these are sometimes really high profile people. Sometimes they're not necessarily high profile, but they're just doing some incredible things. And one of the consistent themes that I hear from them as they're navigating between idea and action, between dreaming and doing, I really dive in and say, okay, tell me about that moment when you had to ask yourself, why not now? And how you got across that bridge from dreaming to doing. And a few of the the themes are popping up, but at, at the same time, the one that strikes me the most is these people tend to take massive action the moment they know they want to do something, meaning they put something in place that holds them accountable. 
kind of an irreversible out and intentionally put themselves on the hook for it. And sometimes that means announcing it publicly, even though they may not know exactly how they're going to do this why not now thing that they've decided to do. Sometimes it means you know, financially committing to something. It could be sharing with someone who know you know will not let you back down on it. Yeah. And it's just a way to cross that starting line. You know, it's yeah. a way to get yourself going and it puts that internal pressure on. And so there's a quote and it says, if you want to take the island, you burn your boat. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the theory there is what can you do right now to make sure you follow through? Yeah, that's such a important takeaway because I think a lot of times we make promises to ourselves without proclaiming that to other people. And it's a lot more difficult to keep yourself accountable than it is to have an entire community of people (laughs) keep you accountable. Have you done any sort of like group mastermind settings or anything like that, Amy Jo, to help you take that practical step? I haven't done anything formally and it's not that I wouldn't. I just haven't really approach that yeah mm-hmm. that angle on things mm-hmm. yeah of course what are some practical ways that you try to implement that into your life well one thing is without having a formal mastermind i do have a few people in my life that i consider the people that would be in that group yeah. right mm-hmm. and a few mentors that i know if i mention something to them they will be asking about it I'm doing it intentionally, you know, to have that be a checks and balances of holding myself accountable. That's one way. Another way is, you know, if it's something small or maybe a little less life impacting, committing in terms of signing up for something or Mm. buying that ticket or having that difficult conversation. Sometimes a lot of cases, a why not now is really, I know I've needed to talk to XYZ person Mm -hmm. about this issue and I've been putting it off personally or professionally, but it will really set me free and allow me to move forward if I have this conversation. So setting the meeting, reaching out and scheduling the meeting, that's one way to do it too. What have been some of your favorite conversations? I know we mentioned just a couple of the topics guests that you've had on the show recently. I know you can't pick a favorite. Okay. That's kind of like picking your favorite child or something, but can you (laughs) highlight one of them that just kind of sticks out in your mind of something that you learned from somebody that, you know, most of the people listening to this would know? Oh, it's such a good question. And I have so many flying through my mind right now. One that it's just, it's top of mind because it was recent. Ryan Holiday, who is an author and he Mm -hmm. has written several books, one of which really helped me through an interesting kind of time in my life. The book is called Ego is the Enemy. And in this conversation with him, he and I start talking through this concept of whether you want to be an important person or you want to do an important thing. And that's a really interesting conversation to have with people because especially as we look at social media and our relationship to credit, And how we appear with our, I'm using air quotes here, personal brand. It's really timely. And so he had one specific statement that I find so helpful. And I said to him, how does one person start to audit whether or not they're in the to be or the to do camp? Mm -hmm. And if you're in the to be camp and you really want to move over to the to do camp, what can a person do? And he said, the first thing you can do is ask yourself, what's your relationship with credit? with getting credit for things. And Mm. he's 30 years old and he's lived 
the life of four or five people, I'm convinced, <laughs> given the wisdom and what yeah. he's he's navigated through. So that's one of them. I mean, Tony Robbins was amazing for obvious reasons, but right, also the right. fact that he's just his energy and his favorite word is now, you know, so why yeah, not now is right. great. Pretty, Billy Corgan. Perfect. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. was fun. It's, and then there are people that you've never heard of that are just as impactful and right, they're, right. those episodes are just as popular. So it's, it's not just the big names. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. One of my favorite pictures of yours on Instagram is you with Shaq back in the day. It's one of my favorites just, just because of how huge the guy is and just how the contrast between the two of you standing there. But also because Shaq is like, he was like my childhood hero. I played a lot of basketball growing up and I had, you know, Shaq bobbleheads, Shaq mural painted on my wall, like Shaq, like everything Shaq jerseys from, you know, basketballs, all that kind of stuff. And what was one of like the biggest things that you've learned from him? Well, I, I really appreciate everything I've, I learned from him. And I think sometimes we think we're learning one thing and we actually learn another. In yeah. fact, not mm -hmm. just sometimes, usually that's the case I found. Right. And caveat here, that photo that you saw on my Instagram, yeah. he's standing on a chair in that photo. So full disclosure, <laughs> oh, if anyone's listening and goes and looks, it's at Amy Jo Martin. We were at this photo shoot and <laughs> he's a jokester. One of the things that I learned is back to your question was, Shaquille's goal in life is to make people laugh. Mm. It really, and it shines through. He has zero ability to fake anything. And yeah. I think that's why we worked so well together in terms of his social media and, mm. and really taking his brand to the next level because he comes across exactly how he is. So yeah. he's as real as it gets. And it's, it's cool to see his career continue to take different paths and Right. Angles right. after his athletic career. Yeah. yeah. In a time when most athletes start going down, he seems to continue to be building something, which is, I think, super, super cool and makes me admire him more from like a, now being an entrepreneurial business standpoint than it was in the basketball standpoint when I was younger. So yeah, super, super cool and so much awesome stuff. And I'm sure we could talk about the takeaways on your show for hours. But if you're listening, we obviously don't have hours. So go check out <laughs> Amy Joe's show, Why Not Now, on your favorite podcasting platform. So now, Amy Joe, I kind of want to move this conversation since this is Build Your Network. We love to talk about networking and building relationships, which you obviously are master at doing this. So I'm really excited to get into this part of the conversation with you. And this is the question I always use to kick off this conversation in this direction here. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? What you know, 100%, because what you know will help you meet who you want to know. Can you kind of expound on that just a little bit? So for somebody listening and they're going to take 2018 and they want to double down on one of these two areas, they want to take a deep dive into getting better at their craft, or they want to take a deep dive into building more relationships. What would be your advice? Getting better at their craft. And that will help them connect with more like-minded people. It will help them identify who they should connect with in order to you know, continue to grow. What you know will always trump who you know, in my opinion, because it helps you connect with the people that make sense for you to continue to grow. And that's what, definitely a... And what are some ways that people can work on the what? Like when you were starting out, was it just like reading a bunch of books? Was it taking courses? Was it mentorships? What exactly helps people, do you think, in the what you know part of their lives the best? Listening a ton, which if you're listening to the voices of authority out there and just making sure you understand kind of 
what the tone and trends are with what it is that you want to know and not necessarily taking it as they are the end all, but just being aware of the current conversation and then experiential. I mean, the quicker you can try to get in and learn by doing, I'm a big fan of that. Of course, reading, of course, listening mm-hmm. to audiobooks, podcasts, whatever. That's all just as important. The more you can start implementing, the quicker that knowledge that you're absorbing through the other mediums will truly sink in and get into your bones. So it's practice, yeah, I'd practice, say practice, basically, right? Finding ways to start implementing, right? Yeah. Even mm-hmm. if it's baby steps in your basement. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, right. there's no better way to learn than by do. Okay. So taking this conversation now, talking about the fact that you obviously were very, very competent in your skill set enough to be able to get in front of the people that you've got in front of. Can you tell us a story about how a person that you may have met connected you to somebody, to somebody, to somebody that led you to this big opportunity that traces back to the fact that you knew your stuff going into that first relationship? Yeah. I'm trying to kind of reverse engineer. I think these things happen all the time time every day without realizing it. And it's, I don't really even think of it as networking. That word can be, you know, the connotation when I hear it, I think of, yeah, small talk, having cocktails somewhere Mm. with people that I don't know. And it kind of turns me off. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But if you think about it in terms of just being authentic and connecting with people for the reason of genuinely being interested in what they're doing Mm. and them vice versa interested in you. Yeah. What you just said, and I'll kind of say something here and give you a second to think about a good story, but what you just said is exactly what we try to do on this show. Take the word networking and strip away all the negative things that you think about it and replace it with words like what you just said, like building relationships, making friendships and doing basically just meeting people and being a normal person and not having this hidden agenda, like five years step you know, five year, 10 step plan to eventually monetize this relationship further down the road and stuff. It's just all about just caring, being genuine, meeting people, growing friendships and building actual relationships. And you heard it just now from one of the best. I mean, this girl's she's interviewed the best of the best on her podcast. She's gotten in front of so many awesome people. And it's not because she's got 3000 business cards in her back pocket and goes to networking events. It's because she's focused on creating real genuine connection and real genuine friendships and relationships with people. And that's what it's all about. It's not about the business cards and the cocktails and chatting about nothing and small talk and stuff like that. So fantastic insight there, Amy Jo. Thank you. I have my story, but before I tell you the story, can I, would you like to hear something really quickly that's highly relevant to that? Of course. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to assume you do. So we just had the Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. And I was invited to a Super Bowl party in Minneapolis. And it was going, it's a big charity event with a lot of, I call them fancy people. I'm from Wyoming. So I, the fancy people is kind of what I call them, although they're just <laughs> like everybody else, yeah, what I've, right. I've learned. And I was going to go with a friend and who I was advising for. And We didn't end up going intentionally. It was kind of a last minute decision. Part of the reason why we didn't go, she's not a great networker, but she's an amazing entrepreneur. And she's like, but you're such a good networker. You can help, you know, the head of so-and-so is going to be there. And like Jamie Foxx was hosting it. Shaquille O'Neal was DJing it. And I said to her, actually, I'm not. 
a good networker in that scenario. You know, I'll end up t- talking to the same person for hours <laughs> yeah. because I like to go deep friend, in yeah. terms of conversation and I end up not meeting anyone else. So I am not, in terms of the traditional definition, I don't mm-hmm. consider myself a great networker at all. So there's just a little caveat, yeah. by the way. Would you be? Would you consider yourself to be an introvert? You know, I think I'm. it's all about the scenario the and environment. It's energy sa- that, and that definition kind of yeah. sounded like more introverted to me because that's exactly how I am. I'm pretty introverted, which is kind of ironic that I host a show about meeting people. Uh, yeah, and that's, we that's... tend to bucket ourselves. And I don't right. know if mm-hmm. every, you know, yeah. if everyone is just one or the other. I think there are yeah. times where I'm very much of an extrovert, and there are other times I recharge and get more energy by being. Alone. On my own, yeah. usually. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm the same exact yeah. way because exactly what you said, <laughs> that's how I would describe my networking, quote unquote, networking event experiences is just like, I'll, I'm talking to one person the first day and then I'll just look for that person like the next three days because like, oh, I already built a friendship with that person. Like, I know who that is yeah. now. So I don't want to do this again, <laughs> you know, but well, yeah, super especially funny. in those types of situations and especially having worked a bit in the entertainment field and been around that kind of Hollywood scene a bit. Mm -hmm. Usually at those parties, people aren't focused and being present. They're looking over your shoulder to see who else is there, who they might want to go meet. So it's just (laughs) kind of funny. You know, it's just a show, but there's also fun to it if you're like into that or whatever. So my story. (laughs) So yeah. So anyway, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Story. Okay. Women dressed up with feathers in a pool at this party that I was supposed to go to. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you've got that going for you. <laughs> That's your oh, thing. man. That's um, funny. Which is me, is art. So, okay, my story. There was a moment when I was working for the Phoenix Suns in the NBA and I had been experimenting with social media. I didn't know what I was doing, it was just new and I was kind of playing. And I reached a roadblock within the front office because there weren't any rules for social media yet. And I had been helping Shaquille O'Neal and I had, you know, of course been doing it on my own. And I was in charge of direct, or I think it was called director of digital new media and research. It's called new media back because it was so new. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure what to do as far as convincing HR and senior leadership that this was a good idea and that we need to be open to the space. So I Googled, companies, I just kind of Googled companies that are using Twitter. And I found this company called Zappos. I had never heard of Zappos and I'd never purchased anything, of course, but I found them. And then I found this guy who ran Zappos and he was the CEO and his name's Tony Shea. And I found out that he had encouraged all of his employees to be on Twitter. And this was at the time, maybe 2008. And so I thought, I'll reach out to this guy. I had no idea who he was. All I wanted was, hey, do you have a policy for this, a social mm-hmm. media policy? Right. So I direct messaged him on Twitter. And two weeks after I said, hey, do you have a social media policy for Zappos? He wrote back, be real and use your best judgment, period. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a man of a few words two <laughs> weeks later. I was like, okay, well, so I actually did take that to HR and to leadership and said, hey, this is what the Zappos guy is saying. And then he DM'd me not too long after that and said, Hey, I noticed you're in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to be there giving a talk. Would you want to come? Mm-hmm. He hadn't even written his book at that point, Delivering Happiness. And oh, so wow. I was like, or he's just getting started. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Long story short, fast forward, Travis, he became a mentor, a friend, first a friend, then a mentor, then That's an awesome. investor. Of mine. Wow. And 
to back to your question, I think, well, who introduced me to him? Well, it was social media, but then you kind of can go all the way back down the rabbit hole of who helped me get the job at the Suns or why did I get it? And then, right, right. So it's kind of a fun thing to do sometimes with connections in your life mm-hmm. and follow them all the way back. I'm like, well, who introduced me to them? Well, then right. how did I meet mm-hmm. them? And and you start to notice patterns in your choice of, of networking, I guess, your, yeah. your path and Go back system. and examine the butterfly effect, so to speak. Totally. Yeah. It's kind of fun, actually. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Really cool. And that's such a fantastic story and a really great mentor to have as well. So when you reach out to people cold, Amy Jo, kind of like what I know that that's how uh, you ended up saying yes to this interview was just a bunch of cold reaching out. Do you have any tips for people when they're trying to reach out to somebody cold? I get this question sometimes where people are like, man, I really want to talk to this person or that person. They're like, how do I get in touch with them? Do I go meet this person who knows this person who knows that person? Or, and I'm just like, hey, look, first of all, just Try to reach out. You know, a lot more people are more accessible than you think they may be. And, you know, if you don't get a response or they never read your message or whatever, then you can try to other avenues. But what's some advice that you have on reaching out cold to people? Yeah, I guess the kind of taking a step back and if we get you know, a little more meta here is I try to look at equal value exchange. What is it that I could help them with and or at offer value? And that can come in so many forms, right? And then in return... What is it that would help me? And reaching out cold, if the person that's reaching out hasn't done a lot of listening prior, Mm -hmm. it's tough. It's like walking up to someone at one of those, I'm using air quotes, networking events and Mm -hmm. asking them to buy into a timeshare. (laughs) (laughs) You would never, you usually wouldn't go straight there, right? Mm -hmm. So warming up the conversation and really listening and knowing what's important to them is is not going to hurt. Mm-hmm. And like doing, uh, doing your research ahead of time, basically, is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And then you're right. I think there was an article recently that came out talking about Steve Jobs and saying how one of the most valuable things you can do is ask for help. And he talks about how he would reach out cold to people mm-hmm. and just ask them for information. And a lot of times people do want to help. It's about what it takes for them to help too. Is it an easy answer? Is it an easy redirect to the person that would be able to help them better? Is it when you're asking for someone's time, like get on the phone and take 30 minutes to an hour, Mm -hmm. it gets trickier then. Yeah. Well, value. Yeah. So basically I moved to Los Angeles at 17. I knew no one, but I had the hopes and dreams of becoming an actress and just, you know, dealt with dealing with Los Angeles for many, many years, had the ups, had the downs, had the success and the money to the, you know, back down to the nothing, can't even afford a Starbucks. So I've kind of experienced both sides of things. Mm -hmm. And then in 2003, met Grant Cardone and we got married in 2004. My life just took a drastic change in a completely different direction where I kind of forfeited my acting career to actually become an entrepreneur, but not in the traditional sense that most people think of it. I kind of pushed all my chips in on Grant Cardone. Like he became my business. So everything that he did, I am behind the scenes, like the business of running him. So 
so that turned out to be a lucrative decision. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that decision, Elena, because I know it had to be kind of difficult because acting is not an easy career to get into from what I have been told. So all the work that you did up to that point, and then you meet Grant, and then you decide, you know what, it's time for a pivot. Was it difficult to make that decision to kind of go in a different direction and pursue the more uh, the entrepreneurial type of a field? Or was it just something that you were like, you know what, I know this is the next step? Well, it was a difficult decision because you know, since I was 17 years old, two days after I took my last exam in high school, I was on a plane to Los Angeles knowing no one. Hmm. So I've been on my own self-sufficient supporting myself since I was 17 years old. And now I get married to Grant Cardone and I'm in a marriage. And yet I still think I have to protect myself. I have to make my own finances, even though I know I didn't get married until I was 30 for a reason, hmm. but when I did decide to get married, I know I wasn't going to quit on the relationship, but still in the beginning of my marriage, I wasn't so convinced maybe he wouldn't, so I kind of always felt like I had to have this cushion to protect myself in case things didn't work out. Hmm. So that was when the decision was difficult, not so much in giving up the acting, even though that was kind of challenging too, but the real difficult decision was you know, am I going to trust this guy? The 2008 collapse happened and Grant just had a, more of a foothold in finances and how we could actually, I could actually see his vision of protecting our future more than I could for my acting career, hmm. which, you know, had its highs and its lows. So the decision wasn't hard once I just decided, you know what, I can trust this guy if I put every single resource and asset that I have behind him, then we can actually create the empire and the lifestyle that we want. And I won't be dependent on somebody saying, yes, you're blessed with this job or no, you're not. Or I always felt like I had to depend on somebody else. So in regards to the decision of taking my life and then going in the direction I wanted with my choices, that was an easy choice to give up acting. But when it came to, you know, is this really going to pan out? Yeah. That was the difficult. So I just had to, you know, ignore all the negative and just push all the chips in and, and know who I am and what I have to offer. And I just went behind Grant. Yeah. It was, so it was difficult really at the beginning to put full trust in him. So what was it eventually that you were like, you know what, I'm all in, I'm all in. Well, it was the 2008 collapse hmm. when we did not know what was going to happen. We had a lawsuit, you know, sometimes when you start making it, people that aren't entitled to anything mm -hmm. start to try to think that you're going to be their sugar mom or sugar right. daddy. And that's right. what happened to us with some friends that we thought were friends sued us for what was an enormous amount of money, millions of dollars, which was just terrifying. It was our first lawsuit. I was pregnant. The economic collapse happened. The banks were going under. One bank alone started to panic, called in a $30 million loan. It was like, you need to pay us now. It was like extremely stressful times. We wow. were like, what is going to happen? And that's when I said, you know what, enough of this acting thing. It's time to get serious and really create an empire that will no longer threaten destruction, no matter what happens to the economy. Hmm. And that's what we spent the last 10 years building. And now we're finally at a point now where we've hit that. We're not where we want to be in life, but we've hit that 
stage where we've made some major, major, major like wins and rewards and achievements is the word I'm trying to look yeah, for. Yeah. So you told a story at Thrive about you telling Grant that he needed to go for a billion. Can you tell that story a little bit and expound a little bit on that? <laughs> It was a few years ago, maybe about five years ago now. You know, we're friends with a couple of billionaires, and I realized that what Grant has to offer people is even more than I felt like these people have to offer. I could see so much in Grant. I am his biggest fan, and he constantly, continually motivates me and inspires me, and I just, as much as he's doing and as big as he's gotten and as far as he's taken us, I still believe that he is underutilizing his potential. Hmm. And that's not easy for anyone to hear. And he could say the same thing about me and he would be right. So I felt that way. And I felt like, you know, it was, he needed to become a billionaire, not for the money, not for the trinkets, even though those are nice and they're very exciting, but that's not the reward. The reward, my logic was, is that if he receives a billion dollar, it's because he's exchanged that much in abundance with others. And right. if he's gotten his products and his word out to actually receive a billion dollars from people, then I know for sure he will have changed lives and helped people. Hmm. So I told him one day, you need to become a billionaire. But I didn't preface it with all the nice, great <laughs> stuff I just said to you. I just out of the blue said, you need to become a billionaire. And it sent him into this absolute rage is kind of a strong word, Frenzy. but it really, it really upset him on a number of levels because he's the one that's out there shoving, pushing, grinding. It, it takes an enormous amount of energy. The man never shuts off. And to hit a billion just seemed overwhelming to him. Like, how much more do you want from me? And when is enough enough? And when will you be satisfied? And all those other misunderstandings that he had when it was taken out of context. Yeah. But when I was finally able to say, hey, you know what? You can achieve a billion. It's who you are. And that's your target. And if you fall short, big deal. But that should be your target. Hmm. And you can help people. And I believe in you. And I'm here to support you. And I'm willing to sacrifice. You know, when you put a billion dollar target in front of your husband, you can't be a wife that then says, you don't spend enough time with me or you're always <laughs> on your phone. You know, it's right, like right. I'm willing to hit the sacrifices because I want to see him win. I want to see, you know, I think the greatest love you can give to somebody is to help them achieve their dreams and their goals. I mean, what is more thrilling and exciting and fulfilling than that? You know, and when we hit those targets together, it's like it makes everything worthwhile. It's like, you know, marriages are not easy. I mean, anyone that's married, I don't think I've ever met a couple that's like, oh, we have the perfect, easiest marriage. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where those people are. They're hard for me. Right. You know, we're blood, sweat and tears over here trying to get through life. But it's like a baby. You know, I delivered two kids naturally a home birth. And the first one, I literally thought I was going to die. But as soon as that child was born, every mother will tell you this. You forget about the pain. That's what it is for Grant in life. When we hit our targets, when we hit our goals, when we hit our achievements and that baby, so to speak, arrives, it's like you forget about how hard 
the marriages or how difficult or this or that or whatever. It's just all worth it. So that's the game we're playing. And that's why I said a billion. And it's turned out to be a great target for us because it's opened us even bigger in so many ways that has expanded our capabilities of what we thought we were capable of. And now we're on a completely different path. And it's exciting. It's just really exciting. And I love the way that you broke down the billion dollar mark, because I think it's such, I think a lot of people look at that amount of money and they just, the first thing that pops into their mind is greed. And this is something that Grant teaches on a lot, which is getting rid of that mindset that money is bad and that if you're rich, you're a bad person, that kind of a thing. And so I like what you said about, I know that if he made a billion dollars, if he actually got that money from people that that is directly correlated to the amount of people that he's been able to help in the world. And that was such a fantastic way to look at it because I think that that is such a limiting belief for most people. So why do you think, Elena, that a lot of people won't allow themselves to look at numbers like that? You know, it's a mindset. It's where we grew up. I grew up in New Orleans. You know, I hung out. I was a little street rat in the French Quarter, you know. I'm not supposed to be thinking this way about money. I didn't. We were taught to turn the lights out and to eat the food and to not waste water. And I mean, everything came from a scarcity and there's not enough and always worried about money. And it's just, I think that's where it comes from. I think people are just not used to being able to have things. The haveability is small. And, you know, I was a a little punk rock chick and, you know, we thought people with money were greedy and Mm -hmm. I had to completely rework everything that I thought. But, you know, it's out there. You've heard everything about people with money. You've heard all the same things that I have. And a billion dollars is even embarrassing saying because immediately I want to defend it or not have people think I'm just in it for the material things, which which I'm not. It's interesting, Travis, because the more money that we've had, the less need or desire I've had for things. But it might not look like that because I still like my Chanel. I still like traveling (laughs) in our private plane. But it's like I don't need those things to make me who I am or or fit in or identify with who I am. I am me. I want to help people. And that's people can believe it or not believe it, but that's who I am. That's The more money that we have, the more good we can do and we can help more people. I'm just going to be more comfortable in a nicer plane getting around the globe, being able to do that for people. Right, right. It just facilitates your ability to help others. Yeah. I mean, that's really what we're all about. Like, I mean, I don't need a billion dollars to just go wear a $100,000 Chanel suit and some furs and some heels and go attend some foo-foo parties and make stupid conversation with people like that does not interest me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's so much about that that we could dive into. And honestly, Grant's been a huge proponent for the way that I think about it now, um, listening to his podcast and the content he puts out there, because it is taboo, you know, to say like, I want to get rich one day, or I want to be rich, and I want to have money like it, it's such you're just taught to have this that exactly what you said, Elena, the scarcity mindset from such a young age that Oh, we don't have enough of this, we don't have enough of that you have to conserve this, you have to clip these coupons 
cons to save money here and do this and that. So just literally shifting your mindset to thinking a different way about it can open up an entirely new world of possibilities. Now, Elena, I kind of want to shift the conversation here. This is Build Your Network. We talk about a lot about relationship building and networking and how to go about doing those sorts of things. So I'm curious to know your answer to this question. This is how I usually get the conversation going. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? It's a little bit of both. It really kind of depends. I believe it's what you know, because if your mind is in the wrong place or you have that scarcity mindset or you don't know how to use discipline or take massive action or make another phone call, it doesn't matter who you're around because they won't want to be around you and they're not going to want to help you. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who, like people, I mean, like no one's going to give you anything in life, like no matter what, they might help you depending on what you know and what value you have and bring to the table and have to offer. So I'm going to have to go with my initial analysis of this. It's what you know. Okay. That's why I'm always trying to train, work on my mind, work on everything about me to make to, to think differently, to think outside of the box, to make me gut up. And then when you're in front of the who, which is important, because when you finally get in front of the who, you better have something important to say. Hmm. You better know what you're all about. Right. You better not right. just be a piece of milk toast or you're not going to have an opportunity. Right. I mean, you know, luck is whatever they say about luck. It's about the preparation or whatever. Preparation, meeting opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how that worked for you. Cause I have to think that as an actress, you got to know the right people in order to get auditions or roles or opportunities. But then, like you said, if you're no good, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> so can you kind of talk about that? How did that help you? How did building relationships with other people help you in your acting career? Well, in the acting career, again, I was, I guess I was lucky early on because I was always able to get the best modeling agencies, like elite. When I went into acting, I was able to get the top agencies, the top managers. And then, you know, I didn't do enough of that. You know, looking back, I probably should have done more. Mm -hmm. That is a regret. Like I I look at younger people today and I'm like, oh, but, you know, they're on their own path and they have to figure things out. But relationships are very important because I would work on one set and then a few months later I'd be on another set and there was about three or four of the same crew and everyone talks and it's a small world. And, you know, the people want to work with each other who they have good relationships with, who they can trust. They want dependability. They don't want drama on that. They don't want an actor or a crew member who's going to start nattering about the director or this, that creates problems. Mm -hmm. And that goes around. Or if you're late or not professional, you know, the buzz gets out and people can hurt you because you can lose jobs over that. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I really learned about that sort of industry and, and getting along with people and I never really had a problem with that because I've always kind of gotten along with people. But I remember there were people that were difficult or showed up later, acted like divas. And then eventually, if they're not a superstar and they don't have mega talent to offer, they got forgotten. They weren't given another opportunity. 
you know? Right. So tell us then about a time in your life, Elena, like a specific story that you can kind of pull out from your past where a connection that you had, a relationship with another individual led you to a big moment of success for you. Hmm. Let me think about that. I'm trying to think. I have this one where I was friends with this casting director. And he's really great. His name is John Papsidera. He cast major stuff. And I went on this audition for this film. And I don't know. I could just kind of feel like I did a really good job. I wasn't sure. And you're not supposed to call the casting people. It's like in Hollywood, don't call me, I'll call you kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I called them and said, hey, what happened and how do I get a role in this film? And he was like, you say you really want a role in this film? And I was like, yeah, I really do. Blah, 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 blah. And he was like, well, you did really good. Let me talk to the producers and the director. And anyway, I ended up getting a role in the film, which then got me to the Maxim magazine thing, which is now kind of more of just a bragging, right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, but it did get me some more, like it helped me kind of break into more of the movie aspect of things Yeah. by just having that relationship with the casting director. Just the one, yeah, that's a perfect example. That's exactly what I was looking for, Elena. Something where it was just like a relationship that you have with somebody, There's they're a friend of yours. You didn't have like this hidden agenda where it was like, you know, if I become friends with this person, they'll set me up with here, which will lead to this. And then I'll become Maxim Magazine's top 100. You know, like it wasn't like this whole long plan that you had in your head. It was just a relationship with the casting director. And then that's right. Um, well, the Maxim had seen the movie and the movie got some notoriety or whatever. And and then that's how that happened. Yeah. So I just feel like in life, if you're my friend I'm trying to help you. I have a, my best friend, Rebecca, in New Orleans, owns this store called Chatterbox. Well, every time I go to New Orleans, I shop. I do, like, most of my yearly shopping at Chatterbox to support her. Hmm. I have friends here that are in the gun world, and they make incredible ARs or I don't know if you know what a PCC is, but they make guns and they're my friends. Like, I buy my stuff from them. If I have a friend that you know, once help with her charity, I help with the charity. Like I'm not looking for anything in return, right. but I just feel like it's just good karma. It's good. You help your friends and your friends help you. Right. So my question for you, Dory, is why? So you're in a kind of a more corporate setting and you bounce around from this opportunity to this opportunity. Why make the leap into entrepreneurship? Well, you know, for me personally, I, we, so would you like me to answer it for me or for like, why should one for you, for you? Why was it that you, after doing all these different types of things, were like, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. You know, the job, Travis, that I had right before starting my business was being a nonprofit executive director. Okay. And, you know, sometimes people slag on the nonprofit sector, but I, I got to tell you, it is the hardest work in the world. You know, you've got all these people working for good causes, you know, trying to do their best. And I was running a tiny organization. It had an annual budget of $150,000. We had three staffers that we had to support using that money. And it was a bicycle advocacy organization. And I was under so much pressure because it was this 30-year-old organization that somehow had not managed to grow beyond that in 30 years. Mm. And I was responsible for the fundraising. I mean, we had a board, but you know, really it was me as the executive director who had yeah. to bring in the money. And 
I just realized, you know, oh my God, it's it's on me. And if I don't do it, this venerable organization is going to go under. Yeah. And there was so much stress and so much pressure. About a year in, I had this kind of moment of clarity where I realized, wait a minute, number one, I am running a business that is, you know, that's not how nonprofits think of themselves, but that's exactly what it is. You have to, you know, you have to be in the black, you have mm -hmm. to be successful, yep. keep all your stakeholders happy. And number two, I could run my own business and be so much less stressed and probably make more money. Hmm. And so I planned for another year and I took that years long period to educate myself about business. You know, I took classes, I read books, you know, I did all the stuff to try to be as smart as I could when I launched. And uh, I, of course, wanted to give the organization proper notice as well that I'd be leaving. Mm -hmm. And so then after running the nonprofit for a couple of years, I decided to become an entrepreneur. So, you know, many people think entrepreneurship is about risk and, oh, it must be a bunch of risk takers just taking <laughs> more risks. But I actually felt like it was a, a far less risky decision for yeah. me to make. Yeah. And that, that's actually why I asked the question, because I wanted you to get to that whole transition period. I think that's one of the misunderstandings that a lot of people have when they're getting into entrepreneurship is that they think that exactly. They, they're like, well, it just comes with risk. That's just the part of the game. And while that is accurate, there can be such a, a level of practicality that you also bring to it. So I love that you took literally an entire year doing something that you knew you weren't going to be doing for the rest of your life, but you stuck with it and you engaged with it and you let the organization know. But at the same time, you were also working on all these different skills, gaining knowledge and gaining insights to be able to put into your business when you actually started. And so I think that that's a huge insight to take away from that is if you're sitting at home and you're wanting to jump into entrepreneurship, don't feel like you have to do it without having a plan. Some people do it that way and then, you know, some it works for them, but it's also a really good idea to be practical and have that peace of mind when you jump into something so that you know that this is going to be the next step for you. So Dory, when you jumped into entrepreneurship, that's such a vague term. Can we break that down into exactly what you started doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this actually changed quite a bit as well, which I, I think is the other important piece, Travis, because over time, your initial vision of what you're doing might alter as well. I originally thought that what I was going to be doing was starting a political consulting business because I that's what I had been doing right before mm -hmm. running the nonprofit. And that seemed like the clearest path to me. So I thought, OK, I'm launching a political consultancy. And anyway, it, it was just based on where it was in the cycle and based on whatever factors, I didn't get a lot of political clients up front. What I did get was a lot of inquiries from people that I knew that worked in nonprofits or government agencies or things like that, small businesses, and they wanted to hire me. And I was, you know, pretty hungry for business. So I was not going to say no. Right. So I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> and so I very quickly pivoted and, and said, well, I guess if I'm doing this work, then I'm not exactly a political consultant. I must be a marketing or a PR consultant. Hmm. And that was kind of the initial pivot was recognizing that the targets that I thought that I was approaching yeah. and that I thought would be my clients were for whatever reason, less receptive than I'd imagined, but other people were more receptive. So I just switched in order to make that more possible. The art of the pivot is definitely something that a lot of people struggle with. Like how long did it take you to realize that actually this is probably going to be the direction that I'm going to be going in? 
Well, you know, early on in terms of who the clients were, that took place pretty quickly, probably within two or three months. What actually took a little bit longer was another pivot, which is that originally, and you know, again, we start where we can start, right? So originally, a lot of the work that I was doing for people was very similar to the work that I had done as a political communication specialist. So I was, okay. I was doing a lot of pitching, a lot of PR stuff, trying to get people in the paper. I was writing press releases. I was doing a lot of copywriting. Maybe I'd write speeches or you know things like that. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize within a few years, I would say within about three to four years of starting my business, that that was going to be something that I would have to move away from as well. Yeah. And the reason was at the time that I launched my business, which was 2006, that was really the beginning of an inflection point because social media was on the rise. That was on the positive side. On the negative side, newspapers were just very, very rapidly collapsing. And there used to be a lot more space in newspapers, like we've kind of now forgotten. But I mean, they used to be huge and there was a lot of space in them. And so therefore, it was a lot easier for people to get coverage in the newspaper. Yeah. And so I still had a bunch of clients they were expecting to get covered in the paper. And, you know, three years ago, if they did a blah, 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 they would get covered in the newspaper. And so meanwhile, they hired me and they would expect to be in the newspaper. When they were not in the newspaper, their assumption was that I had screwed up hmm. or that I had done something wrong right. because, well, why aren't we in the newspaper? And I'm like, dude, maybe it's because the newspaper is 60 percent smaller. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but nobody wants to hear that. And I just realized like, oh, this is a losing battle. This is a field where I'm going to have a bunch of people that are going to be dissatisfied clients. And that is not a business that I want to be in. No. So I had to pivot away from doing PR stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. So now fast forward a few years, you've written a couple of different books. What inspired uh, Entrepreneurial You? So Entrepreneurial You is a book that I wrote because I essentially just really wanted to understand what people were doing who were able to build extremely successful seven-figure businesses as essentially solo consultants. Hmm. I would hear stories about colleagues who were just raking in the money. You know, they were doing, oh, this one had a $2 million launch. This one had a $3 million launch. And I thought, whoa, you know, what do these people know that I don't know? Right. right. <laughs> you know, I was doing very well. I had a six-figure business. I'd been running my business for about 10 years, but it, it seemed like there were some things that I really could benefit from learning. And so I thought, okay, what's my way of learning it? And having been a former journalist, my go-to instinct is, well, can I interview these people? And, you know, that can I then share that with other people? Because that, that makes it a win-win for them as well right, to help right. raise awareness about that. So I wrote Entrepreneurial You essentially so I could figure out how to make more money in my business and help other people figure out how to make more money. And so I interviewed more than 50 top entrepreneurs about the specifics behind their business model and really tried to break it down to create an action plan for people. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love, I'm holding the book right now, Dory. I'm a little bit into it right now. I haven't, have not been able to finish it yet, but I love the monetize your expertise point because I want to ask you a question about that. At what point do you feel that somebody becomes an expert at something? Yeah, I think that it's an important question. And I would say that there's gradations, right? 
of course, plenty of people say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's the Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I also think that there are stages before that. So, for instance, a model that a lot of people could potentially use that I think is a useful one is what I will call the peer who is just ahead of you model. And so essentially, as long as you have something of value to offer people, and as long as you were honest about what you know and what you don't know, you are often an expert to other people, even if you know just a tiny bit more than them. Hmm. So for instance, an example that I like is there's a guy named Josh Kaufman who's written a book that is very successful called The, the Personal MBA. And basically what he did, he did not have an MBA and he did not want to have the time or spend the money to go back and get an MBA. Mm -hmm. But he's like, what if I could teach myself? And so he embarked upon this campaign to read all of the foundational books in the business canon. And then he wrote a book about his experiences learning about that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a really great model and a great example because, you know, he's not presenting himself as, oh, I'm the world's expert. You know, right, I have 10 right. PhDs in business. He's like, no, I'm just a guy, but I'm a guy who wanted to learn how to do this. And I did it. And here is what I picked up along the way in case you would like to do something similar. And so I think that a lot of people can lay claim to a form of expertise like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the answer that I was looking for, because that is one thing I see so many people do and I'm guilty of it myself. And I think a lot of us just run into that imposter syndrome and feel like we're inadequate to be able to claim to be able to know something that someone else doesn't know. But the fact is, if you know a little bit more than, you know, 80% of the people in the country on something, then that you're kind of an expert, you know, like you don't have to be, like you said, have to have 10 PhDs on this certain topic in order to be able to be qualified to teach it. As long as somebody wants to learn something that you know, then you can be an expert in whatever field that you're in. So I think that a lot of people wait too long to do that. And I think that there's definitely some timing that goes behind that and you don't want to do it too soon if you truly don't know anything about a topic. But I think that a lot of people don't really ever fall into the too soon trap. They fall into the, they wait too long trap, but awesome stuff on that Dory. If you have not been able to go pick up a copy of entrepreneurial you, you can find it on Amazon. And then you also have a worksheet. Is that correct, Dory? I do, actually. Yeah, it's yes. uh, for, for folks. <laughs> yes, glad you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> for folks that are interested in thinking about ways to develop their own multiple income streams, how do you diversify your business? How do you come up with other ways to monetize your ideas and things you're doing? There's a special self-assessment workbook that I created, the Entrepreneurial You Self-Assessment, and folks can download that for free. It's 88 questions to actually walk you through the process, and you can get it at doryclark.com. It's D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com slash entrepreneur. So go download that worksheet. I recommend everybody doing that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, everybody go download that worksheet, work through it, and see what ideas you can come up with. And I'm sure Dory would love to hear what you have coming out of that. And and now, Dory, I want to kind of switch the conversation here and talk a little bit more about networking specifically, about cultivating relationships and building relationships with people, which you are fantastic at, you're a master at it. Just interviewing 50 entrepreneurs for your book is a networking feat in and of itself. So I want to ask you this question to get the conversation going, and then we will go from there. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? Well, you know, it, I think with all things, right, that, of course, it's both. 
But if I were to pick between the two, if we were at gunpoint, I would say that probably it is who you know that is more valuable because I think that we all know something. We're assuming that the distinction is not that you are like a hopeless idiot, but you have all these friends. Presumably, you know something. You just might not be the world's expert at it. And I think that that is a much stronger position to be in than being the world's expert, but nobody knows you. If you're the guy alone in a cave you know, it is. It's like the the tree falling in the forest. It's nice for you, but you're not helping anybody. Right. You are not adding value to the world if you're not able to convey that and share it and have it benefit other people. I think we can probably all think of lots of people that may not be the smartest or the best in the world, but they're pretty good. Mm-hmm. And if you're pretty good and you have a good network, that is an extremely powerful combination. Yes. Yeah, so true. So important. And then The thing is too, Dory, is that it also compounds on itself. So if you're pretty good and then you have a large network and you get to know those people, you will ultimately become really good because you're around really good people and you can't help but up-level yourself when you're around really good people because it's just what happens. If you don't up-level yourself when you're around really good people, then you're not going to be around really good people for that long. You know, like you have to become a better person. You have to become the what that you know will always increase if you focus on the who you know first is the way that I look at it. But tell us about a time, a specific story that you can remember, Dory, that where a connection in your life led to a big moment of success for you. Well, you know, one recent story, Travis, that comes to mind, something that I am doing that I'm very excited about as a side project, you know, I'm a big believer in doing things that are fun and doing things that are interesting and doing things that will just sort of expand you. And so one side project to that end that I'm doing is starting next fall, fall of 2018, I am going to be entering this program that I was accepted for, which I ended up deferring for a year because I had a book launch for Entrepreneurial U called the BMI Lehman Angle Musical Theater Fellowship Mm. and is a fellowship run by BMI, the music publishing house, and is basically focused on training the next generation of musical theater writers. So I am training as a musical theater lyricist and I'm really excited about it. But thank you. Yeah. So, So first of all, I never would have heard of this program if it hadn't been for a guy that I met, a guy named Jeff Marks, who's the creator of Avenue Q, the musical. And I met Jeff Marks at TED, the TED conference in Vancouver. And it was at this private dinner, like the night after TED ended. And we ended up sitting next to each other. And I was interested in musical theater, but I didn't really have any connections or anything. I sat next to Jeff and he told me about it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's exactly, you know, what I need. That's fantastic. So he tipped me off to this program. And so I made it a goal of mine. And of course, you know, you need some persistence in this process. I applied the first time in 2016, did not get in. I then reapplied in 2017 and kind of committed myself to the process of learning. And I did get in that second time. But so Jeff told me about it. And then Jeff, you know, was a real advocate for me in the process And I had yet another friend, a guy named Michael Roderick, who's a a great guy, also a real networker and a networking expert. He connected me with, you know, uh, another colleague that was very helpful to me in the process. And so through that, through these people, I was able to get accepted into a program that, A, I think is going to be an amazing learning opportunity, but B, may open up whole new professional pathways for me. 
Yeah, that's such a great story. I love I love every aspect of that. So you got a lot of different areas of interest then. You're definitely the wearer of many hats, so to speak. If I remember right, I heard your interview on Entrepreneur on Fire with John Lee Dumas, and you were also doing like some stand-up comedy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I got into stand-up comedy because I have a friend in New York named Terry Trespicio, who's also a speaker on business and career topics. And she does stand-up comedy as a hobby. And she suggested, I was like, oh, that's great. You know, what did you do? How can I do it? And she had taken a course and she suggested it to me. So I took that same course and got into it from there. So, you know, yet again, it's, it's the network helping to inspire some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic too. Um, If I'm ever in an area where you're doing some stand-up comedy, I will gladly come listen. I'm a huge fan of of stand-up comedy. My wife just like looks at me as I laugh my head off at every stand-up comic that I watch. So, uh, I'll I'll be a good audience member for you. Trust me. (laughs) Nice. So with this being so important with networking, with building relationships with people, with getting out there, talking to folks, having more experiences with that being such a crucial aspect of your professional career, Dory, why do you think that a lot of people just neglect to do that? I think a lot of people neglect networking because it's just easier for people to fall into ruts. You know, that's sort of the the natural pattern, right? It's just Mm -hmm. kind of, well, let's master this and then kind of hit homeostasis. And so in my speeches that I often give, I'll I'll tell a story about a colleague of mine that does something so simple, but I think is so smart, which is that she had a practice that she followed where every week she would invite a different colleague from a different department out to lunch. And, you know, it's like so simple and so obvious. It's like literally one hour per week for networking. And at the end of the year, you have 50 new contacts that are people that, you know, maybe you met once in a meeting, but you didn't really know. And now you've gotten to know them and they're willing to help you trade ideas, whatever. You know so much more about your company or, you know, you don't have to do it in your company. You could do it in your community, Hmm. but however you do it. But for a lot of people, it's not like that's really hard, but they just they don't think about it because, oh, you know, like I I just uh, fell into this pattern of, oh, I always eat lunch with Jim or, oh, well, I just skip lunch or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So I think it's a minimal amount of effort, but if people are not consciously focused on it, they're just going to miss it. Right. Right. So doing it on purpose is definitely something that I've seen. A lot of people just exactly what you're saying. They just kind of let life go by. And then they think networking is something that just happens on accident, you know, like, oh, I happen to be at this coffee shop talking to this person. And then all of a sudden they talked to this person and then it just kind of worked out that way. And I think it's such a, to me, it's just such an irresponsible way to view an aspect of your life that could literally change your entire future. If that makes sense. Like it's just such an irresponsible way to look at the activity of thinking it just, you know, happens on accident when you can kind of take the control into your own hands and predict what your future is going to be because you are consciously giving that particular aspect more effort than you would typically. So fantastic, fantastic advice there. If you had to choose one networking tip, Dory, so we talked about a few different things, but let's boil it down to one thing. If somebody's listening and they got to go really quick and you want to just give them one thing that they can take home tomorrow and apply to their life, what would your one networking tip be? Well, one thing that is really not hard for people, even if they're shy, they're introverts, whatever, I interviewed a guy named Michael Katz for a Forbes blog that I did a while ago, 
And he told me about just a very simple exercise that I think is pretty powerful, which is that he has a list of, let's say, you know, whatever, 150, 200 people, something like that, that he has considered his top people, you know, the most important people in his network. Hmm. And, you know, for all of us, we can imagine who that might be. Maybe it's clients, maybe it's people who refer us to clients, maybe it's like just influencers we know, whatever. And so he has a little practice that is that first thing every day when he's sitting down at his computer, he will take like between five and 10 minutes and he will take three of those people and just write them a short personal note. Now, this is not a long thing. This is not even like, you know, oh, so, you know, like handwritten takes a long time, have to find their address. No, he's just emailing them. And it's like, it's like, hey, Travis, you know, hadn't talked to you for a little while. How's everything going? Oh, have you seen any stand up comedy lately? How's your wife doing? You know, right. just thinking of you, wanted to say hi, blah, blah, blah. You know, two minutes. By doing that, you're staying in touch, you're staying friendly, you're staying on the radar. And it gives you a way to just keep that connection alive with the most important people in your life. And that way, the connection stays fresh. And it's not weird if later on, if you email back like, oh, Dory, what's new with you? And it's like, oh, well, you know, actually, Travis, I'm looking for a new job. So in case you know of anything in the blah, blah, blah industry or, right, hey, I'm right. thinking of moving to California. So if you know of any openings, it's not like you're the guy who only contacts people when you need something. Mm -hmm. You've kept up that relationship and people like you enough to want to help. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that tip. Follow-up is something that I really try to work on because it's not something that comes naturally to me. It's just kind of like out of sight, out of mind for me. So when I meet people, you know, I do a really good job at that, but then follow-up is something I need a lot of help in. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. As most of you know, I talk a lot about giving value to others. And this podcast is one of the ways that I try to do that since all of the content from the show is totally free. So when people ask me how they can add value to me, one of the ways that I tell them is to head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and review. This not only gives me feedback on what you think about the show, but it also helps me with Apple's algorithm. So please, if you haven't done that, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. It adds tremendous value and it only takes a minute or two of your time. And if you want some more free content from me, head over to three, that's three spelled out, three networking secrets.com to watch my free masterclass on the three best kept secrets to building the network of your dreams. I promise that you will not regret it. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.